Heavenly Father, help us to see through our ears. Help us to see, Father, through the heart of faith and enable us to see into Christ and into you, our Father, in Christ, into you, our Father, who has done something extraordinary for us in Christ. Bless us with the gift of the Holy Spirit, Father, in our conscience and heart to receive your Gospel just afresh and anew like it was the first time. Father, strengthen me now and bless this Gospel to your people in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a really meaty passage. Probably so dense that you need to break it up and do two weeks. So I'm probably not going to do it entire justice, especially to the end of the passage. In fact, the longer I studied it, the more I realised that I'd get in trouble for how long I preached. But then I read one of the most famous preachers ever and he said a good pastor is to deliver his church from thinking about time. We should be so Christ conscious that we're not time conscious. And I thought, I've got a congregation like that. I can preach for a long time. It's amazing how God ministers to you though. Now last week the 10am service didn't hear this message. It was recorded at 8 o'clock but we saw that God deliberately set Paul off to Jerusalem through a revelation to vindicate the message that Paul had been preaching among the Gentiles. Paul had had a smear campaign against him saying he wasn't a true and authentic apostle And so what God decided to do was to set him up in Jerusalem with the head church where he laid before them the gospel that he preached among the nations and lo and behold it was the same gospel that Peter preached. God vindicated him, unity was there in the gospel and Paul in that tense meeting had to deal with false brothers. And what we saw was this, that because of the freedom and the truth of the gospel Paul was able to stand against false brothers. He was able to stand against Satan. He was able to stand against the opposition and the gospel was then preserved for us. Thank God for him. And we, you weren't here. We had a bit of a look at Martin Luther and we saw that he was in an intense battle, lo and behold, with Rome. At the end of his battle, he said, here I stand. You won't move me from this gospel. My prayer is, brothers and sisters, that you will not be moved from the truth of the Gospel. You will stand in it and stand against all that is opposed to God and His grace. We would be a generation that carries the light of that Gospel. Why stand in sin? What does it get you? What do you get for your sin? What do you get for standing in the flesh, death. Why do it? Last week the issue was circumcision. This week it's food. And the Apostle Peter has actually done what Paul didn't... Well, he's, he, Peter has actually fallen under the pressure that Paul resisted. So when Peter came to Antioch, Paul actually has to oppose Peter to his face the showdown of the giants. Can you imagine it? Here you have the great Apostle Peter 
Imagine if he was your pastor at the time. Do you know what he would have been saying to you? No more pork. Have you been circumcised? Have you been baptised the right way? Are the candles on? He'd fallen. He'd fallen. He'd fallen. Peter had fallen. Not the first time. Barnabas, even Barnabas, says Paul, had fallen. The great man Barnabas had fallen. And all the Jews along with him. Where does that put us? Where does that put us? Peter, who once enjoyed fellowship with the Gentiles, and he would have enjoyed that fellowship around food, because food and fellowship go together, don't they, die? And uh, he separated himself, and he stopped eating their food, and he withdrew. Notice that? Separation, withdrawal, because he's too holy. too pure for the Gentiles. Cleansing is no longer by the grace of Jesus Christ. So he withdraws back to the Old Testament law, the dietary law, and says, well, we are a people separate to you. Do you think we have problems today in our church? Read the early church. But why did he do this? Why could an apostle who had already previously preached to the Gentiles seen the Spirit fall upon them at Cornelius' house? How can somebody who's been a preacher of the Gospel actually fall into such hypocrisy? What drove him to be two-faced? Fear. Fear of the circumcision party. Imagine, imagine having the nickname, here comes the circumcision party. Why? But they were religious heavies. And religious heavies always carry weight, usually around their belly. No, but they usually carry weight and they're intimidating and they have an effect on congregations. And they obviously had so much weight that Peter saw them and Peter looked at them and he went, I've been eating pork, I've been at the deli. And he withdraws. In the case of Peter and Barnabas and the other Christian Jews who had been led astray into hypocrisy, it is out of a fear of reputation. What do these religious people think of me? If you are at that stage where you live your life by what people think of you, you will be concerned about one thing, your reputation. In Noel Jew's commentary, a guy called Stanley Stokes says this, We are all reputation conscious. Don't you dare look at me and say you're not. We are all reputation conscious, aren't we? Yes, we are. And some of us have a reputation. Some of us have it for piety. Some of us for efficiency. Some of us for leadership. Some of us for preaching. Some of us for housekeeping. That admits some of us too. It could be for anything. Others of us wish we had a reputation. Once the reputation is acquired or assured, it can haunt us, it can dog us, it can browbeat us, it can tear us to shreds. Bondage to reputation can be sheer slavery. 
and yet do we know it is only a form of struggle for our own righteousness. We are unwilling to be known as failures along any lines. Do you know self-righteousness stinks? Isaiah calls it filthy rags and I won't tell you what kind of rags. Reputation, conscience is our struggle for appearance. What do people think of me? And in the end we become dishonest about ourselves and so we become hypocrites, we become two-faced, we believe one thing but put into a place of difficulty where we have to stand, we shrink back from what we believe and we start to speak things that we regret. Believe one thing, get cornered, say another thing. We all know it, don't we? Consciences can, conscience can make cowards of us all, can't it? What you have to remember is this, is that in this situation that Peter has fallen, that reputation, consciousness of him has been there for a very long time. He has struggled with it. Somehow, the Gospel frees us from it. He has fallen, but when Paul comes to rebuke Peter, he actually has to do it in a public way. Why does he have to rebuke Peter publicly? Why not privately? Peter's sin is public. He's a leader, he's a pastor, he's an apostle, he's leading the church astray. He has to be pulled up publicly, he has to be shown that what he is doing is wrong so the whole church can again be at rest and at peace. Imagine if Paul didn't stand. We'd all have to become Jews. But the thing is this, and I want you to really take this home. Paul does not rebuke and correct Peter's behaviour. He rebukes and corrects his gospel. Do you understand that? He corrects his gospel. Why has Peter fallen? Because he's fallen from the truth of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, behaviour comes out of the gospel. If you focus on behaviour rather than the gospel, all you're going to be thinking about is what? Behaviour. Come to, come to Monday nights, come to our cross-cultural meetings and if I had a recorded the first year of meetings, the first year of meetings was we need to change their behaviour. And I kept saying, no, we don't and we can't. We are here to preach the gospel, to teach them to come to faith. Law can change outward behaviour, can't it? You know that as parents. You can get your kids to even say thank you now. How kind of them. How did they come to say thank you? Fancy having to teach children to say thank you. But law can conform outward behaviour, but it can't transform the heart. Only grace can do that. Brothers and sisters, the Gospel is not tithing. The Gospel is not how many people you have in your pews. Did you know that? The Gospel is God's work in Jesus Christ that we are called to proclaim. 
separate the gospel from the fruit of the gospel, otherwise the gospel is lost. And if you start proclaiming that it's about money and you start proclaiming about people being in the seats, what are you proclaiming? Not the gospel. Are we a people biblically educated or not? Can we tell the difference between somebody who is false and in the church proclaiming something that's not true? What happened during World War II? What happened to the German church? They had Bonhoeffer, they had people write to them and actually say to them, Adolf Hitler is actually not from God. But do you know that the church was so theologically thin that it couldn't stand, but a few did. See, Paul, when he saw Peter and Barnabas, he saw that their conduct, their behaviour, was not in step with the truth of the Gospel. And so he said to Peter before everyone, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Just by the way, who thinks that the Old Testament Jews were justified by faith or by law? Were Israel justified by works of the law? No, they were justified by faith just like we were, which means that they could never keep the law and they could never earn righteousness by the law. So for Peter to tell the Gentiles to live like Jews was suicide. The Jews couldn't even do it and they very rarely did it. So if Peter was your pastor, how would you go? What would you have done with him? Would you have said, oh, he's ordained, we can't touch him. He's been trained. We we have confidence in our pastor. Is that a real scenario? Is that where your theology is? Confidence and trust in your pastor. What if he's wrong like Peter was? What if you say, I trust what he says, I trust what he teaches? Be in real trouble. So Paul goes on in verse 15 and 16 and says, For we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. That is, we are a part of the covenant that the Gentiles were not a part of. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Law over here, a person over here. You are not justified by law, you are justified in a person. His name is Jesus Christ. He's the Son of the living God. He's the one who bore your sins on the cross. He's the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. You are justified in a person. When will we understand it is in Him and not by what we do? And yet we insist, we insist to keep on pushing the envelope with law. We insist that it must be something to do with me and it must be something to do with Christ. At that point, you become a slave to the devil, the world and the flesh. And some of you have been in the church for a very long time and you may not even know the experience of justification. 
but you know the experience of condemnation. Why is that? We Jews have believed in Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified in God's sight. Listen to that. By works of the law, no one. Do you get it? By works of the law, no one. No one can be justified and put right with God. No one in this room. I can't be, you can't be, Jew can't be, Gentile can't be. So why do you try it? Because of the deceitfulness of the heart. Paul is saying there is no second rate Christians. Both Jew and Gentile are silenced under God's law. You can't, you can't be right with God through circumcision. You can't be right with God by putting the candles on. You can't be right with God through the ceremonial law. You can't be right with God by keeping the Ten Commandments. Let me give you an example. Men, you might understand this in some ways and women, you'll understand it in a, in a different way. When I go to mow the lawn, within five minutes I start to see all the overhanging branches everywhere. And I think, uh-oh, after I mow the lawn, what have I got to do? I've got to go now and cut all the branches. I only, my only intention was to mow the lawn, but there's mess there. As I'm cutting the branches, I see weeds. So I've got to go to Bunnings now and buy weed killer and come back and kill the weeds. Then I go to the shed. The shed's dirty. I've now got to clean the shed and now I've got to go to the tip. That's after I do the dishes. The law is like that. It says, keep working, keep working. And after you work, you've got more to do. And after you've done that little bit more, the law says, keep going. Keep going and you keep going and you keep going and you keep going until you're never justified. You can't get there. The law just says go, work, do more, more and for some reason you look at the laws that we believe in and they're all good. And that's what Luther says. Luther says we're suckers because the things we turn to are good. Nothing wrong with candles. It's when we trust in them. He actually says God very rarely will put a man in a very difficult temptation. Satan will not do that. Rather, Satan will work on tricking you through some good law. So the law can never get you there. But what Christ does is He takes you there. And in Him, you already have what is called a perfect standing of righteousness. Now let me explain this because over the years we get biblically punch drunk. You know what that means? A boxer can get hit so many times in the face that he no longer feels the punches. And so when we talk about righteousness and justification, we've probably heard it so many times, we don't feel it. It's impact. But to be righteous by faith means this. At the beginning of your salvation in Christ Jesus, you are as perfect with God as you are at the end. 
You are completely righteous before Him here at the beginning when you're obeying Christ and you are exactly the same with Him at the very end of your Christian faith. You are exactly the same righteousness because the righteousness you have is actually Christ's righteousness. It's never your own. So therefore, it can never be by works. And we all go, yes, I know that. I know that. I actually think we find it hard to hear. The problem is, is it comes as a free gift. And let me put it to you this way. You can never offend God ever again. In Jesus Christ, you can never offend God ever again. How are you going with that statement? Who thinks I'm a heretic now? Well, let's, let's debate it then. Let's actually have a decent conversation in the church. You can never offend God ever again. In Jesus Christ, there is no offence. Tell me why. Let's become gospel people. Tell me why you can't. Because the Lamb of God has taken away the sin of the world. He's taken away every offence. There is no more offence in Jesus Christ before God. You cannot offend Him. When you sin, you are just as though you have never sinned. And you think that is easy to live by? That is not easy to live by. That is actually hard to live by. Anyone can live according to the flesh. You've only got to be born. But to live justified by faith actually is to go against every instinct of the world, the flesh and the devil. So I always ask this question, where's your joy gone? Because where there is justification by faith, there is the fruit of joy and peace and love and there's the desire for godliness. There's a new desire that comes in your heart when you're justified. You actually don't want to sin and when you do sin you're not happy with it, are you? You actually are upset that you have and your conscience becomes incredibly sensitive and you worry about the thing that you've done. Have I offended God? So it's very hard to live the new life in Christ justified. Faith simply does this, brothers and sisters. Faith receives. Faith receives God's grace. That's what you need to know. Faith doesn't make anything happen. Faith is just saying, yes, this is true. This is true. Now, the age-old question is this. Does that open us up to do whatever we want? If we're now so free and so justified, can we do whatever we want? Well, Paul writes this in verse 17 and 19. But if we Jews, in our endeavour to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinner, is Christ then a servant of sin? Is Christ a servant of sin? Absolutely not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor, for through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. That's, that's quite meaty. Let me put it to you simply. The only way for a Jew or a Gentile to be justified in Christ is if, in fact, you are a sinner. And when people hear that, they say, hang on a sec, 
but doesn't that make Christ a servant of sin? No, Christ covers your sin. You actually need to be covered and so the way to justification for Jew or Gentile is simply to be a sinner. Let me illustrate this. A few weeks ago, I preached somewhere and a man from another denomination came to me. I won't mention this denomination. He heard me preach on God's grace and forgiveness and he said to me, I think you and I believe the same thing. By the way, you need to know he's living in open sexual immorality. I know that about him. And I said, I don't think you and I believe the same thing, mate. But he wanted me to. He said, I believe that we must own our sins. Well, in Christ you can. He said, we must bear the consequences of them. This is a bit strange. We must in the end pay for them. If not, we're getting off scot-free. Get it? We must take responsibility for our sins. If we do not, that is not right. He's living in open sexual immorality. How can he say that? Because quite simply, every time he sins, what does he do? Pays it off. Every time he sins, He pays it off, which means that he's able to stay where? In his sin. Luther says the legalist is the biggest sinner in the world. Because when you try to make it by the law, you're toppling sin upon sin upon sin and you might outwardly look alright, but if we dug deep into your heart, you would find that a legalist, as as Jesus said, is a whitewashed tomb. So when you use the law to improve the old Adam, when you say, I'm going to improve something that can't be improved, you add sin to sin to sin and it piles up. And I knew this man was justifying himself so he could go on doing what he wanted to do. Paul actually says, I have died to the law so that I might live to God and I haven't got time to open this up. But to die to the law is to accept the verdict that the old man in Jesus Christ has been crucified. To live to God is to accept the new verdict in your life which is you are a new creation in Jesus Christ. So if you live to God, you live before him and you say, God, how's my reputation before you? So to live before God is to live before your true reputation. How's your reputation before God? Spotless, blameless, no record of sin, clothed in the majesty and righteousness of Christ, accepted as a son of God, there's your true reputation. Now brothers and sisters, I'm going to say to you something. Go and try and live that way. Speak to me at lunchtime. Just see how I'm going at lunchtime after two services and all the feelings of failure and sin that are there within me as I preach. And Just see if I am reputation conscious. But I'm pleading with you today, let's become that way. Let's, let's say no. Let's say no 
to law and let's say yes to the gracious verdict that God gives us in Christ. Brothers and sisters, to live before God is to trust in Christ's performance and to enjoy your true reputation. I have been crucified with Christ, says Paul. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, Christ died for no purpose. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.